Hello, I'm Joanne Diaz. And I'm Abram Van Ingen. And this is Poetry for All. This podcast is for those who already love poetry and for those who know very little about it. In each episode, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. Today, we are delighted to have Martina Spada as our guest. Martina Spada is a poet, essayist, translator, editor, and professor of English at UMass Amherst. He is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and an NEA grant, a Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize, the American Book Award, the Patterson Poetry Prize, and his most recent book, Floaters, is the recipient of the 2021 National Book Award for Poetry. Martin, congratulations and welcome. Thank you very much. Would you be willing to read the first poem from your collection for us? Absolutely. That's a poem called Jumping Off the Mystic Tobin Bridge. And there's a bit of background here. I used to work as a tenant lawyer. I was the supervisor of a program called Su Clinica Legal, a legal services program for low-income Spanish-speaking tenants in Chelsea, Massachusetts. Chelsea is a tough little town right across the Tobin Bridge from Boston. It's a gateway city, a city of immigrants, always has been. And uh, in those days, the immigrants were coming uh, from the Spanish-speaking Caribbean, uh, Puerto Rico and the DR. Uh, They were coming also from Central America, especially El Salvador and Guatemala. They were refugees of war, fleeing Ronald Reagan's wars. And so these were uh, the clients And so the first half of this poem is all about that. Uh, The second half of the poem deals with the most notorious murder case in the history of Boston, the Chuck Stewart murder case, wherein a white man shot and killed his pregnant wife, blamed it on an African-American carjacker who happened to be imaginary and almost got away with it. So, jumping off the mystic Tobin Bridge. I close my eyes and see him windmilling his arms as he plummets from the mystic Tobin Bridge to prove me wrong, to show me he was good, to atone for sins like seeds in the lopsided apple of his heart, but mostly to escape from me in the back of his cab, a Puerto Rican lawyer in a suit and tie. I hated the 111 bus sweltering in my suit and tie with the crowd in the aisle, waiting to hit a bump on the mystic Tobin Bridge so my head would finally burst through the ceiling like a giraffe on a circus train. I hated the 111 bus after eviction day in Chelsea District Court, translating the landlords and judges into Spanish so the tenants knew they had to stuff their clothing into garbage bags and steal away again away from the 40-watt squint that followed them everywhere, that followed me because I stood beside them in court. I would daydream in the humidity of the bus, a basketball hero flipping the balled-up pages of the law into the wastebasket at the office as the legal aid lawyers chanted my name. I hated the 111 bus. I had to take a taxi cab that day. What the hell are you doing here? said the driver of the cab to me in my suit and tie. You gotta be careful in this neighborhood. There's a lot of Jose's around here. The driver's great-grandfather staggered off a boat so his great-grandson could one day drive me across the mystic Tobin Bridge. But there was no room in the taxi for chalk and a blackboard. 
He could hear the sawing of my breath as I leaned into his ear, past the bulletproof barricade somehow missing, and said, I'm Jose. I could see the 40-watt squint in his rearview mirror. I'm Puerto Rican, I said. It was exactly 5 p.m., and we were stuck in traffic in a taxi on the Mystic Tobin Bridge. The driver stammered his own West Side story without the ballet, how a Puerto Rican gang stole his cousin's wallet years ago. You think I'm going to rob you? I said in my suit and tie, close enough now to tickle his ear with the mouth of a revolver. I could hear the sawing of his breath. He still wanted to know what I was doing there. I'm a lawyer. I go to court with all the Jose's, I said. Stall traffic steamed around us, the breath of cattle in the winter air. Uh, where are you going for the holidays? The driver said. I thought about Christmas Eve in court, eviction orders flying from the judge's bench when tenants without legal aid lawyers or children old enough to translate the English of the summons did not answer to their names. Every year, the legal aid lawyers told a joke about the Christmas defense. Your Honor, it's Christmas. I said to the driver, I will be spending Christmas right here with my fellow Jose's. The driver shouted, What do you want me to do? Get out of this cab and jump off the bridge? We both knew what he meant. We both knew about Chuck Stewart, the last man to jump off the Mystic Tobin Bridge. Everybody knew how Chuck drove his wife to Mission Hill after birthing classes, the flash and pop in the dark when he shot her in the head and himself in the belly. Everybody knew how he conjured a black car jacker on the crackling call to 911, the way the Mercury Theater on the air conjured Martians in New Jersey on the radio half a century before. Everybody knew how a hundred cops pounded on door after door in the projects of Mission Hill, locking a black man in a cage for the world to see like the last of his tribe on exhibit at the World's Fair. Everybody knew how Chuck would have escaped, cashing the insurance check to drive away with a new Nissan, but for his brother's confession, the accomplice throwing the Gucci bag with makeup, the wedding rings, and the gun off the dizzy bridge in Revere. Everybody knew how Chuck parked his new car on the lower deck, left a note, and launched himself deep into the black water, how the cops hauled his body from the river by lunchtime when I walked into the office to tell the secretary Chuck Stewart just jumped off the Mystic Tobin Bridge. I said nothing to the driver. I almost nodded yes in the rearview mirror, I confess, for a flash, I wanted him to jump. The driver, the cops, the landlords, the judges, all wanted us to jump off the Mystic Tobin Bridge, all wanted us to sprout gills like movie monsters so we could paddle underwater back to the islands, down into the weeds and mud at the bottom, past the fish plucked rib cages of the dead, the rusty revolvers of a thousand crimes unsolved, the wedding rings of marriages gone bad, to we washed up on shore in a tangle of seaweed, gasping for air. Last night, still more landed here. 
clothing stuffed in garbage bags to flee the god of hurricanes flinging their houses into the sky, or the god of hunger slipping his knife between the ribs, not a dark tide like the tide of the mystic river, but builders of bridges. You can walk across the bridges they build, or you can jump. Hmm. Oh my God, what an amazing reading. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Joanne, you were just saying right before we started a little bit about your own engagement with this poem. <laughs> you want to share any of that? You know, when, when the Charles Stewart case happened, I, I remember it very, very vividly. I remember all of it. And it's such an emblem of the racial politics of Boston. I mean, even to this day, to some extent. But to revisit it in this poem, it is as visceral today as it was uh, those decades ago. And it's amazing because it's a part of the collective memory of the city in a, in a powerful way. I think that's one of the many things I love about this poem, and I wonder if we could begin with the dramatic situation of the poem, which is to say, this is a very social poem. It, it centers on an engagement between the speaker and the cab driver, and then it just radiates out to all of these other historical and cultural pieces of information and insight. Do, would you mind kind of guiding us to that dramatic moment and how you knew to land on it for this poem? Well, let me begin by saying that the speaker is me and this happened. And since the speaker is me and since this happened, it was a story I had been telling for years before I wrote it down. Um, when I began to write it down is when I began to see those connections and make those leaps you're talking about. And so it made sense for me, first of all, to represent the experience of being a tenant lawyer and working for Suglinica by recreating this uh, dialogue I had in the taxi. The biggest leap in the poem, of course, goes from Chelsea to Chuck Stewart. And the connection is the bridge. And that bridge uh, enables me to create a continuum in the poem, demonstrating the connections between uh, different forms of racism, different forms of, of hostility, different forms of violence. And the fact is, this was all brewing around me. This was all happening around me at that time. And uh, of course, it continues to happen in various ways. Can you talk a little bit about the role of poetry in drawing attention to these things? So I'm thinking of the, the poet Barbara Jane Reese has said of your own poetry, that what you're teaching us is in part that to be a poet is to be an advocate, to advocate for those who have been silenced and for places that are unspoken. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that and that sense of advocacy within poetry. Uh, as a legal services lawyer, I was by definition an advocate. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was uh, representing low-income Spanish-speaking tenants in court. I was training and uh, supervising law students who would do the same. And it was a very natural act, as natural as breathing, uh, to engage in advocacy. It's hard for me to imagine doing anything but what I do. To me, one flows naturally from the other. I see uh, myself as an advocate, yes, speaking on behalf of those without an opportunity to be heard. Not that they couldn't speak for themselves given the chance, they just don't get it. And so I have the obligation to speak and and for you to hear their voices through my voice. It's, a, it's so powerful to 
hear you talk about this. There was a roundtable years ago with uh, several poets, Stephanie Burt, Daisy Freed, Major Jackson, and they were talking about the social role of poetry. And they said that, you know, poetry has the potential to change the shape of our social relations and inescapably our individual and collective consciousness. And I wanted to just bring that quote into this conversation because after what you just said, you know, this poem for me is very active. It does not merely describe, it does not merely recount. It challenges me into the relationship that's in this very claustrophobic cab. When we talk about the impact of a poem on the world, the frustrating factor there is we cannot measure it. All we can do is put it into the air into the atmosphere of the society in which we live. And then the poem has a life of its own. I, I would hope that the poet and the poem can change the world. It will do so in a way that is far too slow for me. Uh, but I do what I can with the poetry and even within this poem to open up that sense of claustrophobia. It's, it's intriguing to me that you picked up on the notion of space in the poem. But by poem's end, we've opened up to Charles Stewart jumping off the bridge. We've opened up to the bridge itself. And we've also opened up temporally because the poem moves from the past into the present. They're still crossing the border, wherever the border might be. They are still coming to Boston. They're still coming to Chelsea. And so it is a poem that looks at the present through the lens of the past, as if to say, much has changed and much has not. You know, you cannot, you cannot reverse history. Aquí estamos y no nos vamos. Here we are and here we stay. Another layer of what I'm so drawn to in this poem, and each time I read it, I see something new, is not only are you taking us into the past in order to recount this story with the cab driver, not only are you reminding us of the bigger story of Charles Stewart that was circulating at that time and continues to ripple through, but you're also alluding to other things. For example, in the middle of the poem, but I love this, everybody knew how he conjured a black carjacker on the crackling call to 911, the way the Mercury Theater on the air conjured Martians in New Jersey on the radio half a century before. Everybody knew how a hundred cops pounded on door after door in the projects of Mission Hill, locking a black man in a cage for the world to see like the last of his tribe on exhibit at the World's Fair. That Those lines are amazing to me because, again, you're, you're using two different similes in order to connect the singularity of the Charles Stewart event to these other events. So when I read about, of course, the Mercury Theater, I'm thinking of the War of the Worlds and the radio broadcast that some people were seduced into believing because they wanted to believe it, which goes to your point about the white residents of greater Boston who were so ready to believe that story about a fictitious imagined uh, African-American man. And then this allusion to the World's Fair, I'm guessing, but is that the 1904 World's Fair in, in St. Louis that you're alluding to? 
There was more than one. Yeah. Yes, and and obviously I spoke earlier that sort of continuum of racism going across the bridge from Chelsea to Boston and going across the bridge from the uh, the migrants in Chelsea to um, the African American community is it turns out in Mission Hill. Uh, which is where the police concentrated their search and eventually arrested a man named Willie Bennett. And even after the truth came out, there were those in, in the press and in the public who still believe, well, eh, Willie Bennett, he, he didn't do this, but he did something, didn't he? Such was the faith, such was the fervor of, uh, of racism at the time. And yet it connects temporarily going to the past. And so I make reference to more than one World's Fair with such exhibits of people, of human beings, took place. And yes, there's a reference to War, War of the Worlds and the uh, Mercury Theater on the air broadcast. That was Orson Welles, scared the hell out of people. Mm. And yet, in hindsight, it seems ridiculous to us. If you listen to that broadcast now, you say, how could people believe that? That's ridiculous. Yes, mm. it is. And then we look back at Charles Stewart. How could people believe that? It's ridiculous. Yes, it is. And yet they believed it. I would love to get into some of the poetic structure of this. So this is one of the longer poems we've done. I wonder if you could just describe what draws you to a narrative poem like this, how it relates to poetry that you've written in the past that looks quite different, and what this kind of form enables for you to do as a poet that other kinds of forms would, would simply not enable you to do. Well, I do believe quite strongly that poetry is the art of the concise, uh, even though we're not dealing with a haiku here or a sonnet or a villanelle. Poetry is the art of the concise. The story I tell would take me 30 pages to tell if I were writing a novel or 300 pages. And so there is a compression here. And the image has, again, a great deal to do with that, uh, the construction of metaphors and similes, but also the length of the line that you pointed out. Now, there are those who look at the page and think, oh, he's writing prose poem. These are not poems written in block form. Those are line breaks. And what you were able to hear listening to me read is the musicality of the poem. This voice, which I consider to be my mature voice, is also the voice in the last book, Vivas to Those Who Have Failed. It was the voice in the book before that, The Trouble Ball. That's where you can really see it evolving in this direction. Well, and, and just to get on, uh, to touch on the musicality that you hear as you move through the poem, I mean, part of that musicality to me is the refrains that keep coming up. In a suit and tie happens several times in the first bit and ties some of those first three stanzas together in a suit and tie. And then I hated the 111 bus happens three times within that one stanza. And the 40 watt squint comes back and the sign of my breath becomes the sign of his breath. And there are these repetitions with variations, these refrains that pass uh, from one to the next. And that draws the poem together for me. And I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about the way you think of on repetition and variation in the, in the art of poetry. It is exactly as you, as you point out. And it's a way for me to emphasize what matters to me in the poem. So yeah, the song of my breath becomes a song of his breath. If we are close enough to hear somebody else breathe, you're too damn close. <laughs> most of the time. Yes. You know, and, and so we were, we were far, were far too close to each other in that moment. But uh, the repetition is suit and tie. 
you know, there I was in a suit and tie. And you know what? Wearing a suit and tie is, is, is supposed to be uh, a gesture of power. You know, it is, it is authority. Here I was, not only was I being disrespected, my whole community was being disrespected, but part of the disconnect for the driver was that he couldn't believe he was looking at a Puerto Rican. Puerto Ricans don't wear suits and ties in his world. And so the very armor I put on to protect myself and to go into battle in court was now the basis of questioning my, my very humanity. Um, the repetition of everybody knew, well, yeah, everybody knows now. Everybody knew something different then. There was a before and after there. So there's a certain ironing there, and I'm repeating that. But even, you know, towards the end of the poem, there are sonic devices that allow me to emphasize what's important to me, that allow me to emphasize what matters to me. Those stresses are driving the momentum of the music and also the momentum of the meaning in the poem as we come to a close. I'm also very drawn to how often the cadences of your voice and your text kind of land in a sort of an iambic beat. I, so I'm looking at the penultimate stanza. I said nothing to the driver. I almost nodded yes in the rearview mirror. I confess for a flash I wanted him to jump. You know, there are so many moments at the ends of your sentences where they just land in a very declarative powerful, authoritative way that I love so much. And, um, and even the title of the poem, uh, Jumping Off the Mystic Tobin Bridge. You know, I hear those, that beat, it's very powerful. It's also very natural. Yes. That's, that's a natural way of speaking. And we often think of iambics in terms of the most formal of poems. The, the reality is it's a very natural way of speaking. I will find myself writing with uh, iambic beats, but then also deliberately interrupting those beats. Why? Because I'm not writing in form after all. There is, there is no set form here, so I can interrupt myself anytime I want. And that's especially important when you arrive at a turn in the poem. Even when we come right to the end of this poem, last night, still more landed here. There's another turn. You know, if, if I do write a sonnet, for me, a sonnet, and I'm now paraphrasing Aunt Hirsch, is a 14-line poem with a turn in it. You know, it's all about the volta. It's all about the turn. It's the, the turn or nothing. But in order to do that, you have to be able to make the poem swerve. And you make it swerve in a variety of ways. You know, one way, of course, is through the, the image uh, that you present, but it's also musically. It's also in terms of the sound that you make. Speaking of sound, I would be so grateful if you would be willing to read the poem again, if only so that our listeners can think about all of the things that we've been describing and observing about the poem as they hear you read it. Would, would you be willing to do that again? Yeah. Uh, and you may hear some things because I never read the poem exactly the same way twice. You may, some, you may hear some things that are, that are different. Jumping off the mystic Tobin Bridge. I close my eyes and see him windmilling his arms as he plummets from the mystic Tobin Bridge to prove me wrong, to show me he was good, 
to atone for sins like seeds in the lopsided apple of his heart, but mostly to escape from me in the back of his cab, a Puerto Rican lawyer in a suit and tie. I hated the 111 bus, sweltering in my suit and tie with the crowd in the aisle, waiting to hit a bump on the Mystic Tobin Bridge so my head would finally burst through the ceiling like a giraffe on a circus train. I hated the 111 bus after eviction day in Chelsea District Court, translating the landlords and judges into Spanish so the tenants knew they had to stuff their clothing into garbage bags and steal away again, away from the 40-watt squint that followed them everywhere, that followed me because I stood beside them in court. I would daydream in the humidity of the bus, a basketball hero flipping the ball up pages of the law entered the waste basket at the office as the legal aid lawyers chanted my name. I hated the 111 bus. I had to take a taxi cab that day. What the hell are you doing here? said the driver of the cab to me in my suit and tie. You gotta be careful in this neighborhood. There's a lot of Jose's around here. The driver's great Grandfather staggered off a boat so his great-grandson could one day drive me across the Mystic Tobin Bridge, but there was no room in the taxi but chalk and a blackboard. He could hear the sawing of my breath as I leaned into his ear, past the bulletproof barricade somehow missing, and said, I'm Jose. I could see the 40-watt squint in his rearview mirror. I'm Puerto Rican, I said. It was exactly 5 p.m., and we were stuck in traffic in a taxi on the Mystic Tobin Bridge. The driver stammered his own West Side story without the ballet, how a Puerto Rican gang stole his cousin's wallet years ago. You think I'm going to rob you? I said, my suit and tie close enough now to tickle his ear with the mouth of a revolver. I could hear the sawing of his breath. He still wanted to know what I was doing there. I'm a lawyer. I go to court with all the Jose's, I said. Stalled traffic steamed around us, the breath of cattle in the winter air. Uh, where are you going for the holidays? The driver said. I thought about Christmas Eve in court, eviction orders flying from the judge's bench when tenants without legal aid lawyers or children old enough to translate the English of the summons did not answer to their names. Every year, the legal aid lawyers told a joke about the Christmas defense. Your Honor, it's Christmas. I said to the driver, I will be spending Christmas right here with my fellow Jose's. The driver shouted, What do you want me to do? Get out of this cab and jump off the bridge? We both knew what he meant. We both knew about Chuck Stewart the last man to jump off the Mystic Tobin Bridge. Everybody knew how Chuck drove his wife to Mission Hill after birthing classes, the flash and pop in the dark when he shot her in the head and himself in the belly. Everybody knew how he conjured a black car jacker on the crackling call to 911, the way the Mercury Theater on the air conjured Martians in New Jersey on the radio half a century before. Everybody knew how a hundred cops pounded on door after door in the projects of Mission Hill, locking a black man in a cage for the world to see like the last of his tribe on exhibit at the World's Fair. Everybody knew how Chuck 
would have escaped, cashing the insurance check to drive away with a new Nissan, but for his brother's confession, the accomplice throwing the Gucci bag with makeup, the wedding rings, and the gun off the dizzy bridge in Revere. Everybody knew how Chuck parked his new car on the lower deck, left a note, and launched himself deep into the black water, how the cops hauled his body from the river by lunchtime when I walked into the office to tell the secretary. Chuck Stewart just jumped off the Mystic Tobin Bridge. I said nothing to the driver. I almost nodded yes in the rearview mirror. I confess, for a flash, I wanted him to jump. The driver, the cops, the landlords, the judges, all wanted us to jump off the Mystic Tobin Bridge, all wanted us to sprout gills like movie monsters so we could paddle underwater back to the islands, down into the weeds and mud at the bottom, past the fish-plucked rib cages of the dead, the rusty revolvers of a thousand crimes unsolved, the wedding rings of marriages gone bad, till we washed up on shore in a tangle of seaweed, gasping for air. Last night, still more landed here, clothing stuffed in garbage bags to flee the god of hurricanes flinging their houses into the sky or the god of hunger slipping his knife between the ribs not a dark tide like the tide of the mystic river but builders of bridges you can walk across the bridges they build or you can jump amazing hmm. To learn more about Martina Spada, please visit our website at poetryforall.fireside.fm. And you can subscribe to Poetry for All wherever you get your podcasts. And remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Martine, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for such a, a good close reading of this poem. <laughs>